Well, there's no doubt that the Mime Troupe was and remains a left-wing theater, something I'm proud of. Masterpieces from a maudlin Miro, modernised Marlowe with a Maleficent medic, plus a messy maritime mix of masquerades, masochism and milk, all on this 36th Midnight Video with your hosts me Jim Hall and me Phil Walsh. Tonight, Tony Hancock employs cows, bicycles and a very young Oliver Reed to wow the art world in The Rebel. A jaded surgeon is offered a new lease of life, but at what price? The Doctor Tangos with Diablo in Spanish thriller Fausto 5.0. And Hugh Grant suffers through some hair-curling tales of slap and tickle on the high seas in our Polanski listeners' vote winner, Bitter Moon. I travel a great deal by bus, generally on the top deck if I can, and I don't know if you do, but... Um, I'm a top decker. Yeah. Often if you're travelling around London, you're looking on the tops of bus stops and find odd things. Um, trainers, yeah, shoes um, of any description. Weird, like, sort of potato-looking objects with cocktail sticks stuck in them and then spray-painted different colours. Wow, I've not seen one. <laughs> there's a lot in Hackney, yeah. Okay. There's, some, there's, like, a street artist who does it. All right, so that's deliberate. Yeah, it's deliberate. With definitely. trainers, you can imagine people have had a bit of revelry, a bit of late-night drinking... Mm. The strangest thing I've ever seen on there is a, a, a whole cake. I'm going to say a birthday cake, but it had icing on it. It was decorated. But rather than just being thrown in an, an alcohol-fueled frenzy, someone must have gone to great lengths to get it up there. Because it was all in one piece. <laughs> coming here today, I was coming down the old Kent Road. I looked out the window and what was on top of one of the bus stops? A hardback book of Hellraiser. <laughs> really? Yeah, with Doug Bradley as Pinhead on the cover. I only went, but it was something I just caught a fleeting glimpse of as I was going by. Big hardback book. It looked like it had a plastic cover, like and I like think a library book, like a library book. And it mm. is by um, East Street Library on the Old Kent Road. Uh. But uh, I was torn. Should I get off and try and rescue? Because um, I mean, I don't know. But I know Hellraiser was based on a short story, wasn't it? Hellbound Heart. And after Clive Barker was a hit. When he became a hit, <laughs> I think a lot of things from the books of blood were kind of rearranged in different compilations. So it's yeah. possible this was something, but I was fascinated. Mm, that's interesting. And we've only just started recording now at mm, half past six, but I'm tempted when I go home to get the bus to. Yeah. Well, obviously I'm in fantastic physical shape, so I could. <laughs> does it, it scramble up on a Saturday night to be scrambling around <laughs> on top of a bus station? <laughs> probably be perfectly normal on the old Kent Road. Oh, but anyway, um, by the time this podcast goes up, we'll hopefully be clinking glasses in the blue posts. I'm sure we will. For the last of our drink-ups before you great. Whilst a friend of the show is uh, tying the knot with his beloved. Yes, Matt Nieder. I hope you're not listening to this on the morning of your wedding, <laughs> but congratulations. <laughs> yeah, well done, mate. Well done. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see you soon. And talking of parties... You're not looking too bad, can, given that you were out till the break of dawn. I was, yeah. I was, um, I was dancing all night, um, a techno night down in Elephant and Castle. Uh, a kind of, well, I thought it was going to be my last big blowout, but then someone told me about another party that's happening at the end of June. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, Your I was one uh, big blowout. Uh, 
yeah, I went to bed at half five this morning, got up at 11, had a little wake up call at eight when my son jumped on my head. Um, yeah, I'm feeling, oh, yeah <laughs> I'm feeling pretty chipper otherwise. Though, so. Well, this is an odd coincidence because all three of the films tonight feature strange parties. They do indeed. We've got invitations to all three. <laughs> you ready to check I'm, in at the first? I'm going to fucking gay crush. <laughs> when I paint a chair, I don't just paint what I see. It's not the chairs it appears that I'm interested in. I try to get inside the chair. I try to paint what can't be seen. Feeling of being a chair. I know, that wooden feeling. Yes, I get that quite often. Tiring of the nine to five, his Philistine landlady and the world continually failing to recognize his genius, board accountant Tony Hancock throws it all in and heads to the bright lights and Beaujolais of Paris for 1961's The Rebel, in which the dour comic is soon mixing with spectral beatnik girls bookcase sleeping surrealists, bizarrely coiffured existentialists and bored millionaires' wives for this colourful lampooning of the modern art world. By complete coincidence, we have two films tonight with people relocating to Paris and you yourself are heading off to France before too long. How weird. Um, <laughs> yes. Not Tony, Paris, though. Not Paris, no. <laughs> um, Tony Hancock, you got much of a background with him? No, not really. I mean, obviously I know him. Um, I know he's famous for oh he's always on like the the critics or uh, speaking heads choice of um, comedians of yesteryear it's along with the, no 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 I'm, it's not that um I, I basically spent most of my formative years growing up with my stepfather who was born in the mid 60s so he didn't really he, he grew up in more with Morecambe and Wise and stuff so that's kind of I've gone more that way um but yeah I've known of Hancock but never really been that blown away by anything I've seen or heard but I have seen The Rebel before right I watched it when I was at uni because I did art history for my degree <laughs> and The Rebel's like a great sort of touchstone for uh, well we'll we'll get on to for, for not taking it at all seriously yes yeah <laughs> um, no I mean yeah for, for listeners outside the UK because I don't know if Hancock's really travelled that well internationally his reputation Mm, but yeah, maybe Australia or where he topped himself yeah. <laughs> um, after his tape recorder failed to work I think we've had similar situations <laughs> yes we were late yeah Tony Hancock yeah a big British comedy figure um, institution I guess institution so. yes um, but yeah well he's one of these people who um, the character who played always had his own name so it's kind of hard to Untangle them sometimes, but always playing a very dour figure, wasn't he? Um, mm. Who kind of like in this film always wanted to be regarded as an intellectual. But the for me, I've always found those shows, even though they're I think they're very well written. Um, there's something just a bit too depressing about them because they are, you know, it was originally a radio series, but the the BBC did turn a lot of them into um, TV shows as well. But yeah, the fact they were made in this very grey, black and white. 60s version of Britain probably you get the feeling not long after rationing <laughs> um, there was just something really miserable about them the fact that he always seemed very middle aged as well but was stuck in this kind of horrifying bed sit with Sid James um, and also the show that the same writers did Galton Simpson uh, did later Steptoe and Son again very well written but actually just a bit too bleak for me Yeah, <laughs> almost it's... like Virgin on Samuel Beckett or something <laughs> with these two characters absolutely locked at each other's throats and again you know a, a guy who's aware he's getting older and is being held back by his uh, circumstances 
So, it's a long-winded way, but um, as what I'm basically saying is, even though I've never really been a huge fan of Hancock, the TV series, or the radio shows, um, I've loved this film for a long time. I haven't seen it again for ages, but I remember first seeing it when I was a teenager. It was on one afternoon. And there's something about just the fact it's actually in colour. Mm. That really adds a lot to it. It's very very gaudy colour as well isn't it yeah I think cause I was quite surprised when I saw that it was made in 61 I don't know colour's been around there but I think for a British film it was it's quite unique but you absolutely needed it to be in colour as well though. I mean it's certainly for the subject matter I mean modern art is it's all about the gaudiness of of it and um, and it's a pretty well made film actually yeah um, no very good um, yeah. I mean I was I was just going through it again this morning but right from the outset there's that great title sequence which is animated <laughs> it's not quite soul bass or something but it's a really entertaining um, it, it's one of those great animated title sequences which pretty much sets up the film because I think the opening is lots of bowler hats and umbrellas before moving on to all these other little abstract uh, shapes but yeah that, that sets up the opening of the film which is fantastic Hancock um, as a 9 to 5 commuter he's in the bowler hat and pinstripe but uh, w- without t- sounding too fancy, it really reminded me of um, things like when Orson Welles did the trial. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that everyone's in this uniform uh, of, of the of the outfit, but when they get to the office, yeah, you've written it down in your notes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> when they get to the office, there's those rows of desks, and everyone's doing their ledger books absolutely in time. And mm. I love it when. Um, John Lemezuri as his, as his boss comes in and all of the umbrellas are at the right a- um, at the same angle except for Hancock's which is around the wrong way <laughs> and this is a major problem yeah. <laughs> it's called into it's the it's just office. the look as well isn't it he, yeah. he just looks at him he doesn't have to say anything you know he's just but that was him. yeah that was great and um, like I say visually reminded me of the trial but mm. the whole setup before I don't know if you've are you that familiar with Reggie Perrin, the old Leonard Rossiter sitcom? Um, odds and sods. Yeah. yeah, but again, that was this despair of a middle-class guy who probably had a comfortable existence but was absolutely dying inside, you know. And there's a great bit at the beginning of this when Hancock's on the train and looking around everyone in the carriage who he knows very well, he sees them every single day, but he's... Um, in his mind is all a voiceover going on about who he thinks they are and where their lives are going and what they do when they get home you know <laughs> but also even before that i mean it, i thought the scene was set brilliant because he's waiting at, um like um at, was it cheen is mm-hmm. that that where it all he's mm. famed for coming from so he's waiting at the station and he goes to the opposite platform from everybody else who's in the bowler hats with the umbrellas and then the trains are timed so that they arrive at the same point but he sort of runs through one train to get onto yes. the other carriage and it's really great though because that, that ultimately you know he's a rebel from that point and then yeah like you said the next thing is the umbrella being cockeyed and yeah. it's it, it really sets the scene brilliantly I mean I suppose you go into this film knowing that Hancock's going to be like the main character and portray that anyway but it's good to see it all done just visually basically I mean there's like you say there's the voiceover in the carriage but it's all it's all very um, visual gags of, until that yeah, point yeah because like I say I'm, I'm sort of familiar with the older Hancock ones but not like obsessively or anything so I, I do think this looks like something where they've approached the fact that it's a film and they've got a longer a longer time to tell their story and a bigger budget than they've they've, um, they've taken advantage of that um but yeah, very quickly we find out, yes, that he's the frustrated genius after having a big run-in with his boss at work. Uh, I, I did have, I had to make a note of the name of the company. It was United International Transatlantic Consolidated Amalgamations Limited. 
very Python, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, I was watching that and it reminded me of Meaning of Life. Like yeah, the, the beginning, yeah. Um, but there's a beautiful scene then when he gets home and after coming up with all these ideas of what the rest of the commuters do, he gets home excited as a kid, runs up his stairs, gets to his room, and there we have this wonderful statue that he's been sculpting for uh, who knows how long, <laughs> Aphrodite at the watering yeah. hole. <laughs> it's utterly pointless of it to describe this on a podcast but I'll try anyway the great thing with that is it does kind of look like something that might pass for modern art because it's a very it's very of, Picasso yeah cubist yeah. kind of thing <laughs> weird angles but the beautiful thing with it is the pose it's in just looks bored because it's <laughs> holding its own head up this huge loop of rock um, and in its mouth it has these two little rodent teeth <laughs> that was just the killer touch for me <laughs> The rest of it just looks like a mess, but that looks like something that's deliberately put there to make it just look like it, it, there's no way it was going to work. But, uh, but I love the interaction he has with it because he's talking to the, the statue. It's like Pygmalion or something. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. almost like it's alive and he's like, oh, the my temptress. little beauty. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The devil without horns. <laughs> a Jezebel. A Jezebel, that's a good, yeah. <laughs> Before then having a run-in with his landlady, Irene Handel is another stalwart of British comedy. But um, I don't know, I thought all that was wonderful. I mean, the great thing with Hancock is you can tell they have got the intellectual references. And, well, the writers have, as um, this comes through Hancock as the character describing this, but he always then puts in something in really down-to-earth as well that punctuates it all. I love that. Then, rather like you, he leaves the sinking ship. <laughs> And heads off to Paris to become an intellectual. I didn't vote for Boris. <laughs> you didn't vote for Boris. <laughs> uh, and this is where Oliver Reed makes a fleeting appearance, isn't it? Very fleeting, looking a lot like uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, you know, the young Mexican actor. No. Oh, he's in Itu Mama Tambien. All right. Um, I think you'd know him if you saw him. Possibly. But he's got this sort of almost like coal laden mm. uh, eyelids. Yeah, yeah. With a little beard. Like. No, I thought you looked more, more like Robert Downey as Tony Stark. I know, yeah, yeah. But that was a great scene in the bar when um, they're all talking in very highfalutin ways, and Hancock's not involved with them, but he's sitting there looking absolutely engaged with them and nodding along as if he understands. He just gets closer as well because he's sat at yeah. a table away and then he moves up a bit more and then yeah. a bit closer. Uh, before. Falling in with one of the artists, Paul, who's played by Paul Massey, uh, which is kind of the main plot of the film, I guess. The two, uh, Paul's an established, well, he's not an established artist, he's been living that life of the, 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 the struggling intellectual for a few years, the starving intellectual. Uh, Hancock falls in with him, and yeah, I suppose a lot of the gags there are just the massive gap between. You know Paul's talent and, and Hancock's uh, the the naive innocence of uh, well what uh, does it call it it's egotism the in, infantile yeah the infantile school yeah. that's right yeah no yeah I mean they're they're terrible Again, not yeah. in you can't even pretend that they're they're good in any way whatsoever <laughs> but that is one of the great gags in it that he thinks he's genuinely brilliant but he's in such a community where you get the gist none of them are too confident of their own they need not, affirmation yeah. I mean yeah. affirmation confirmation of. Um, their their skill and worth, don't they? Basically, because they've got the talk, but like, can they walk the walk kind of thing? Mm. And uh, yeah, he just bowls in and sort of bolsters Paul's belief in what he's doing. And they yeah. both like start producing loads and loads of um, art. <laughs> but you've just got like, Tony Hancock just making this absolutely it's it's laughably bad. All done by the same artist, apparently as well. Right, I didn't look this up. Yeah. Um, but then Paul's actually creating quite incredible paintings. Well, well, I think they're decent. Uh, 
Well, yeah, formally they're uh, quite interesting. Yeah, but then because of uh, his naivety, as it were, you know, his uh, unfailing um, um, self-confidence, he, um, this is Tony Hancock, he becomes embroiled within the art world, like, inevitably, through Paul, because Paul knows people, he's been there, he's like set up a shop there, but, and then, yeah, you have this, this great long sort of hour, hour of Hancock being surrounded by people who are more foolish than him in some ways. That's the great thing. I remember in the TV show, people didn't give him the time of day, but then they had like 20, 25 minutes to do the thing. Um, here, one of the best things about it for me is this menagerie of characters they keep wheeling out. And you've got Nanette Newman. Yeah. As this kind of beatnik girl with blue lipstick. She's, She's amazing. Just, yeah, she looks gorgeous, but <laughs> yeah. she looks absolutely ludicrous as well. And a party held by Dennis Price um, as a guy called Jim Smith. But you could, it's all the, I'm going to say they're obvious jokes, but they're no less brilliant for it. I mean, just to see all those characters with peculiar haircuts, the clothes they wear, the things that they think are acceptable. Ways I, th of, yeah. I think it's quite hard, easy for us, like at this time, to view this in such a way. But I think it's pretty scathing for 1961. I mean, that's ju you just getting over the beatniks mm, then. I, I guess. don't know because like Dali and stuff really hit America in the 40s, so there's, there's probably that whole idea of all oh, my kid could paint that. But I mean, this is like a, a big release that people would have seen, uh, gone to the cinema and stuff. Mm. A lot of like people who like Tony Hancock. Wouldn't were probably working class people who wouldn't have dreamed of like they wouldn't know what modern art was. They wouldn't have gone to like the Tate and stuff. So I think that you know this is I think it's pretty cutting satire in some ways, mm. even though it's delivered in like quite obvious ways sometimes. Yeah, but I mean that's the kind of main thing with this for me because I have to step. I really enjoy it, but then I step back and think Alton Simpson is the writers. Mm. Usually it's mocking Hancock for being an idiot, mm. for thinking he's cleverer than he clearly is. But here you're, because it's taking on the entire art world, um, the people who make it, but also the people who market and, and sign the checks. Because later George Sanders turns up mm. and bankrolls Hancock um, inadvertently because there's a mix-up. He thinks he's got Paul's art, but actually he's got Hancock's. And uh, So yeah, it, it's whether there's a bit of an, an anti-intellectualism to this or am I reading too much into it because it doesn't really have too much I don't think really it's, a, I don't think it's intellectualism I just think it's like um, anti-shallowness like because mm. there has always been that sort of it's been uh, it goes hand in hand with art doesn't it especially contemporary modern art anything that's verging on the conceptual is mm. always regarded as it's not just that anti-intellectual but it's like this is just a piss take really you know people just buy into it regardless because yeah. I suppose the two main groups you've got here there is all of those hangers on in the art group but it's clear they're all idiots to begin with yeah yeah because um, I suppose Paul's given you know Paul Mass's character is, is always uh, sympathetic isn't it if anything Definitely. it's because he's got very little faith in himself mm. admittedly alright it's, it's just what's produced for the film I don't think his artwork was that Amazing, but then it's a comedy film. It's, it's not meant. It's not meant anyway, to be yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but it's the later part, which actually I found a bit dull. Which is when Hancock then becomes this celebrated figure, mm. and the um, the hoi polloi get hold of him, and um, he's on. He's almost like in Bond villain territory, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, who's the guy who plays the millionaire in it? Gregory Aslan. Mm. Um, 
who's yeah bankrolling Hancock to come up with some amazing piece of work uh, based on his wife, his wife. Um, who inexplicably falls in love with Hancock <laughs> because um, he's an artist. Well, that's, that's what it. I mean. It's the shallowness. You know, that's it. Because that fact that he's got this pers- yeah. this persona above who he actually is. Like. Yeah, <laughs> which is my, my favourite joke in the whole film. I think is when Hancock is the toast of to the town and he's opening his first exhibition in Paris, <laughs> and all the reporters yeah. are gathered around him, and he enters yeah. with his beret, cigarette holder, and I think the the you know camel hair coat round his uh, shoulders. And when the reporter's asking, oh, Monsieur, how do you mix your paints? He goes, in a bucket. In a bucket with, <laughs> with a big a stick. stick. <laughs> and they all think he's making a joke, but he's yeah. absolutely mortified. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that they, uh, they're not taking him at face value for this. But yeah, I mean, did, did that sustain it for you, that whole joke of the gap between his a- opinion of himself and the reality? Because I usually love those things when, mm. um, when there's that kind of uh, cross-purposes. It's like, I love in the Pink Panther films when we know Cluzo's incompetent mm. and he wins that accidentally but other people observe him and think he must be something else Yeah, I think it's Pink Panther Strikes Again when um, the world's top assassins are after him and he, he <laughs> certainly kills all of them and when the president gets this list he said, you know, 80 assassins killed in one night at these Munich he said, no wonder they want this guy dead he's a one man army <laughs> you know <laughs> but it probably also, cuts to him doing something yes. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but also another Peter Sellers movie being there, which I really love. Yeah. Again, that has that idea of the guy who's he's not trying to fool anyone, but no, he's no. a very simple guy, but everyone assumes he's this um insightful kind of economics guru because of the way he speaks. And I love you know, it's, it's a coincidence they're both Peter Sellers films, mm. but I love both of those. And with this I do quite like the joke, but it's almost without spoiling the end of the rebel, it kind of um didn't quite follow it through to the end. Yeah, no, they I had to give it a kind of. I sp- I'm not going to say this was made in the time of like oof, demographic research and stuff, but it's almost like they had to give it a slightly more positive ending than possibly it would have. On TV, it's okay to just do anything because it can all go back to normal the next week, you know. But it is a little bit shaky. I think it it, it, it peters out in some ways because it's almost like the moralistic stance that he takes. Um, weakens it towards the end. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't really want to give it away, but you know he's played this larger-than-life character who's got so much self-confidence, self-belief in what he's doing, and then that's questioned. But it, and obviously, you know, there's this mistake about yeah. his work and Paul's work, and that's a good twist and it's great. But they don't really keep keep it on from there, or they don't change yeah. it in a. A big enough direction. It doesn't really take off. I I, I agree with that. Um, I was really surprised by the ending because it all resolves itself within the last five minutes, very quickly, and it, I found that yeah, quite like. Which is kind of a shame because <laughs> for me, like I say, that whole bit with the millionaire's wife, I thought dragged. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the movie is about a hundred minutes, I think. But it's almost like that. Yeah. That ten minutes could have really been. It been could have been chipped down. I mean, in fairness, yeah, show the rich people who are buying into this as well as the, the idiots who are making it mm. although without spoiling it too much there is um, the point when they're on this millionaire's barge and there's a bit of an ex- expose on Hancock did you notice this because there's an animal themed party it's like a fancy dress thing and Hancock's mm-hmm. dressed as this very colourful kind of rooster I think the millionaire's yeah. wife is this slinky cat um, but when there's, there's all the laughter of the crowd, it cuts to this guy dressed as a gorilla just laughing. <laughs> it's a really unpleasant guy. <laughs> it reminded me of um, Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> it's, uh, it got, yeah, it was a little creepy, I thought. Trading places. <laughs> God, <yeah. laughs> Stone the crows. 
I just wanted to mention one scene that I love that always stuck in my head is when he uh, it's basically the Jackson Pollock ripoff um, action painting because Hancock's seen this big sort of splash paint if you know Jackson Pollock he yeah. like, pours paint onto a canvas and shifts it around with a stick and whatever you know and yeah so Hancock sees this and thinks oh I'll do one of those in the morning like, so then he gets this look, massive that is his attitude I'll do one yeah. in the morning yeah <laughs> uh, so he gets his massive canvas overseen by this cow that he has uh, in his uh, studio because he's seen uh, Jim get, Smith isn't Jim Smith like why does he have a cow Oh, he finds them relaxing. <laughs> and yeah, so he goes to town, like just pouring paint over. It's a really nice, like, three minute sequence of him putting paint everywhere, cycling over it, tap um, dancing, grooving. He's doing a sort of uh, weird science bit at one point. Yeah. He's doing the kind of uh, the, the hipster thing. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's a really good sequence, though. But it does, it, it actually, it's funny because it, it gets to the nub of it all. He's like, is it the idea or is it how you do it? And well, I thought that is because actually I've got to say when he starts and obviously it was done spontaneously mm. from the cameras, but when he's throwing the paint on, it actually looks good. I think yeah, yeah. It's, funny. it's when he starts doing all that, and the, oh, it's funny because he's in his pajamas. He's just got out of bed, hasn't he? <laughs> yes. Or he's just been he's sleeping on, a wardrobe. on the wardrobe. He's sleeping yeah. on top of the wardrobe for inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> Pajamas, Wellingtons, like a southwestery hat. Um, but it's when he does this whole three-minute sequence, and it does get messier and messier. But at the end, he just says, eh, "That's worth five thousand quid of anyone's <laughs> money." <laughs> it just shows the uh, the love and attention that's gone into it. <laughs> it's commerce, baby. Well, the the uh, dynamic shading of the the concave approach to the underlying color uh, motif has a certain translucid quality. Has it? This show you'll hear are hopefully insightful, hopefully observational <laughs> review. Of After Tony Hancock, you don't trust your own. <laughs> no, I know. I'm questioning opinions. myself. Um, Roman Polanski's Bitter Moon, which you, the lovely listeners, voted for. But in the meantime, we asked you to vote for not your favourite uh, Takeshi Kitano movie, but the one that you'd like to hear his review. He's a filmmaker I've always like really loved and appreciated, and an actor, and well, he's. He's a, he's a renaissance man, he's done just about everything. So I was intrigued to uh, see where people went with this. Jim, you weren't I'd that all fave with him, were you? Obviously I've heard of him, I have seen a bit, yeah, I've, I've seen Zatoichi before, which I really enjoyed last mm. year, but yeah, I'll have to hold my hands up, which I'm doing doing now at the I mean, microphone. I'm not, I'm pretty ignorant of him. So uh, yeah, whatever whatever wins this time, Unless it's Atoichi, <laughs> so, no, it'll be uh, it'll be quite an experience, I'm sure. So okay. yeah, so the, uh, thanks for uh, everyone who uh, contributed, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and here's, here's what some of you said. Do you want to kick off? I'll go. Hans Olo Johansson said, "I'd have to go Hannah by Hannah. I'd have to go Hannah B. Hannah Barbera. <laughs> Colin J. Broadband. This is a long shot, but I'll vote for Dolls. Interesting." You've not seen Dolls, obviously. No. Or Doll Squad by Ted V. Mickles. <laughs> apparently, Charlie's Angels was ripped off from. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's by the by. That must be quite old, then. Yeah, yeah, It's like late 60s, I think. But, mm. uh, anyway. uh, Mark Blumfield, how about Boiling Point? I've not seen it in years, but it was, from what I remember, a really odd one. Am I right in thinking it had no music in it apart from what was on at a karaoke bar? 
and then this was like a little conversation that got going in later on i've looked it up on imdb and someone else has mentioned the lack of music so i don't think i've imagined that i'm fairly certain there's karaoke though did you vote for it in the end <laughs> i think so yeah. okay we've we'll, we'll <laughs> that one down <laughs> marie hepworth takeshi katano is my favorite director actor writer stand-up comedian painter poet and game show host favorite game show host that's good yeah, to, that's what I told yeah, you, Takeshi's Castle. So I would be happy whichever film is picked. However, if forced to choose one, which we did, we broke in earlier in the week, and <laughs> yeah. I think she's forgiven us now. If forced to choose one, it would have to be Sonatine. Uh, Matt Bon. So Actually, is it Sonatine or Sonatine? Sonatine, I'd say. Because S- Sonata, Sonatine, Sonatine. What do you want? I'm speaking at my bum. (laughs) I'm speaking at my bamboo, as my uh, son would say. (laughs) Slapping his bamboo. What are we going with? Sonatine, Sonatine? Sonatine. Sonatine. Yeah. After the whole John Constantine, Constantine thing. It's Constantine, isn't it? Constantine. Oh, man. Sonatine. Sonatine was Marie Hepworth's vote. Okay. (laughs) Matt Barnett, so much great Katana to choose from, but I'd like to recommend the utterly charming, although never saccharine, Kikajiro. No debates on the pronunciation of that one. Aline, well. <laughs> I hope I've pronounced that right. Aline. Aline. Either Fireworks or Sonatine. Both are by far my favourites from him. Mondo Dan, got to go for Sonatine. We did it on Mondo <laughs> years ago, but I'd love to hear you guys discuss it. <laughs> Adam Lowe's Sonatine is amazing. <laughs> Charlie Brigden, my vote is for Hannah B. Charles Edwards, chalk up a vote. Sonatine. <laughs> chalk up a vote for Sonatine. His masterpiece. Uh, Chris Salt, does the Takeshi thing have to be films he directed? If so, Hannah B. If not, Gonin. Hannah Bai. <laughs> Gonine. <laughs> if not, Gonin. Best use of child's umbrella in a disjointed Yakuza heist film ever. Dom O'Brien. <laughs> Zatoichi or Violet Cop? Violent. Violent. <laughs> Zatoichi or Violent Cop? Two underrated Biat <laughs> Takashi gems. <laughs> okay. So thanks to everyone who voted, as usual. Much appreciated. Much and appreciated. it's, it's you, hot, hot, hot at the top. It, re- it really was. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll go. From well, let's have fourth. the honourable mentions then. Honourable mentions. So yep. f- in fourth place we have... Oh, you get to pronounce everything now. <laughs> Dolls, Violent Cop, <laughs> Zatoichi... <laughs> Sorry, I'm not. Uh, fourth place, Dolls, Violent Cop, Zatoichi and Boiling Point all got honourable mentions. <sighs> Number three... Kikujiro. And then, the well, we one, it was tight. It was separated by one vote. It was. Top. I actually had to chase. We had to chase. <laughs> we had to chase someone up. We won't reveal who it is because uh, it'll he be knows like, who he is. Did you see that Kevin Costner film when the entire American election hinged on his vote? <laughs> I think it was a is choice. This real? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was the year Obama got in. I think it was basically bankrolled to try and oh, right. encourage the uh, the public to vote. But okay. I think he's for some reason I don't really understand. He's his was the only vote that was going to make the decision between either having Kelsey Grammer from Frasier as uh, the president brilliant or Dennis, Ho- or Dennis Hopper what that's even better that's, that's two pretty good I choices I think it was called there. swing vote <laughs> or swinge vartare swinge vartare strange pronunciation of it so yeah ultimately 
It came coming down in, to uh, yeah, coming in at number two. Sonatine. Sonatine. No, Sonatine. Sonatine. <laughs> I was trying to do the reverse psychology thing. You uh, <laughs> failed miserably. Um, but finally, making it to the top. The winner is Hannah B, Hannah B, aka Fireworks, which you're very pleased about. I am very pleased. About, so, yeah. I'm looking forward to watching that in the next few weeks. I'm looking forward to rewatching it, and we'll be back to review that in a few weeks' time. But mm. we now have to announce that we've got just one more listeners' vote for yeah, well for the As a, uh, well this time round before for Phil, the foreseeable future before Phil and the Greats. but yeah, we did think we should probably go for. A quite a big name director for this one but with uh, a long history of uh, mm-hmm. films trailing on his tail yeah, I think this might be another Polanski way it's just loads of things get one vote yeah. and then, <laughs> like, you know. uh, but yeah do you want to announce the the name it's Martin Scorsese Martin Scorsese <laughs> Marty yeah. as his uh, friends call him I suppose we could even do Hugo couldn't we that's probably on DVD now uh, yeah I think it is yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, that sounds like a really unenthusiastic. About <laughs> I suppose it. we can do that. Hugo, <laughs> no, please. Um, yeah, he's got a, a long and illustrious. Anything from Boxcar Burford to Hugo includes. Ah, knowing your usual, the, the trouble you cause with Herzog. Does this include documentaries like The Last Waltz and Let's Spend? No, um, no, no. Features, light, wasn't it, features the, only. You're you're slapping your ZZ down on the table <laughs> yeah. and drawing a line. I said no. I mean, like. As we mentioned before, I mean, documentaries are, they are what they are, really. There's not much to interpret from them, I don't think. Um, I, yeah, I guess they're subjective. I mean, even Herzog stuff is. But I I think. I just say they're trickier to review. They are, yeah. yeah. Makes our life easier. Yeah, it's easy to talk about plotting and terrible <laughs> yeah. dialogue and things. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Martin Scorsese. Looking forward to seeing what comes in there. Can't wait. Yeah. Would you recognise the devil if he claimed you'd surgically removed his stomach eight years earlier? After coming off the terminal list, one grateful patient is determined to show his appreciation in 2001's macabre fable, Fausto 5.0, and sets about opening the eyes of his world-weary medical saviour during a nightmarish doctor's convention drenched in faeces, fellatio and formaldehyde. I mean, have you read uh, Goiter's Faust? Nah. Nah, <laughs> okay, thank God for that. I asked my mate last night and he said no, but his girl, well, his wife, uh, ben and Sardia. Sardia's read oh, hello. Faust. Goethe <laughs> uh, and Marlowe. I think she said Goethe. I don't know because I, I I was I was like quite amazed that anyone had read it. <laughs> I mean it's a, it's one of those that everyone knows the story. It's everyone been knows done the setup so many times. Yeah. Like. And actually, what I was meant to do in preparation for this was watch um, Hammersmith is out. Oh right, the Richard Burton Liz Taylor film because apparently so, that's another kind of variation on it, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I think there's one out at the minute, isn't there? Although I don't know oh, Faust! It's Surikov, yeah. Alexander Surikov, the uh, Russian director, which looks amazing. Mm-hmm. It looks brilliant. I really want to see that because he's he's got a great visual style. He's good, 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 good director. Um, but yeah, so I haven't I haven't read Faust. I'm probably never going to. Like I say, we we all know the story. You got the gist. Yeah, so I've read Eric by Terry Pratchett. I haven't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but this this one I, I chose this 
because I read about it when it first came out in, um, you know, the Guardian newspaper on a Saturday has The Guide. Uh, and I used to write for it, yeah. Wow. Unbelievably. Yes. Hum I'm humbled. <laughs> I'm humbled. You didn't review Faust. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, well, back when I was at uni, um, I used to get I used to get the guide all the time, mainly to see the club listings. But I'd read whatever new film would come out, and I read about this, and it wasn't showing anywhere in Liverpool, and I never got the opportunity to see it. But it's always stuck in my mind, and I always thought I'll I'll get round, I'll get round to it. And obviously I never did. And I thought, perfect, we can do it for the show. Um, it's done by La Fura dels Baus, who are a, th a Barcelona or Catalonian theatre group, who have done Fausta 3.0, which was an actual play. Uh, I was wondering what the title was. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where 1.0 and 2.0 have right. gone. I presume that must be 1.0 would be the original, mm -hmm. 2.0 might be Goiter and... Then, as it's gone on, four point oh was meant to be an opera. I don't think that's ever been done. And five, the movie. Um, so it's all very much done in a sort of um, avant-garde. Well, the I guess the theatre group are quite avant-garde in that the uh, performances are always like street performances, uh, the audience involvement and stuff. And you kind of get this with a film, I think, because it's, it's a little bit unconventional in some ways. Yeah. Um, when you sent me the trailer for it, um, I was wondering what, what to make of it, really. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we were going to review it, but um, I wondered if this was kind of like the party you went to last night. The trailer's <laughs> just full of kind of techno music, mm. very fast-cutting, and the main character, Fausto, is a fairly distinguished-looking guy, isn't he? He's probably in his 50s, grey mm. slick back hair. But yeah, it's pretty much him looking pretty like he's going down into the circles of hell, really. Um, but not in a fantastical way, very much in a grimy, industrial kind of way, isn't it? Nightclubs. Yeah. Um, I think even from that trailer, there are lots of flashes of kind of terminal cases and mm -hmm. medical sort of goings on. It, it left a bit of a nasty taste in my mouth, the... Uh, the trailer. So I was kind of pleased to be doing it straight after a Tony Hancock film. <laughs> I thought they'd make a nice, a nice double bill. Um, the thing I want to start off talking about in this is one of the scenes when he's, uh, as we said, all of these films have outrageous parties in them. Um, the party he goes to, uh, Fausto in this, does involve him picking up a girl um, fairly quickly. And at one point has her bent over a table in her underwear and very in in one movement just has his hand on the back of her uh, knickers and rips them off in one movement um maybe i'm on an adventurous soul but i've never i've never tried this maneuver myself <laughs> and it maybe tells you something that when i was watching it i was just wincing and thinking if you actually tried that a terrible wedgie would probably be the best you could hope for <laughs> but the poor girl would probably have a big red mark across her belly <laughs> and uh, you know, I had to. I was wondering if maybe you were steeping it in reality, well, Jim. Yeah, that's what Faust's all about, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Do, do girls now wear kind of Velcro? Um, it's just probably like a very thin um, semi-permeable membrane well, that I, like slowly dissolves whilst they're <laughs> dancing. <laughs> I did have to watch this paused, you know, a few times together, and all I concluded from it was that the Foley artist doing the sound was putting too much work into it <laughs> but there's more to it than this scene believe me listen. no that's the end of the review really. um, although no. I did, did I, I maybe we'll come back to that because I, I've got some oh, yes. points to raise about okay. uh, 
those scenes? No, um, I did like this. I mean, there's good stuff about it. Is it just had a really icky feel through it? Like I say, when I first watched that trailer, it made me feel a bit uncomfortable, and I'm glad it wasn't quite as intense. I thought it was just going to be a headache-inducing film, mm. but it just has an unpleasant feel to it, which I'm not having a go at it for. I think that's perfect. I think it's yeah, yeah it's meant. Yeah. Uh, Fausto himself, this is the modern the modern doctor who's um, specialises in terminal cases, doesn't it? And the start, he's just uh, I think he throughout it, he's got a patient who looks like he's not going to be pulling through. Mm-hmm. There's an unpleasant scene with his aged mother at the beginning, which we won't go into. But throughout it, the palette of the colours in this is very washed out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Deliberately so, and there's something very haunted about Fausto himself, his his face. Um, not wanting to puncture it already, but for uh, British listeners, um, the fact that he walks around in the, the opening of the film in kind of a leather jacket with a roll neck jumper, he looks an awful lot like John Shuttleworth, doesn't he? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> He which, does, though. Which, he really which, does. Which did stop me taking it too seriously <laughs> to begin with. Especially because he does have that look on his face of yeah. disgust that John Shuttleworth does with yeah. with the modern world. But, yeah, great stuff. Not just that washed-out colour, but there's a really unpleasant bit at the beginning when he gets off the train. And, again, it's, it's done very well because you only just have a chance to see it before your brain registers what it is. But there's something which is being cleaned off the front of the train when they get in. And... Uh, Richardson, uh, the yeah, running um, alongside. Yes, <laughs> but seems like also on the train journey, there's a very old woman caked in makeup and the tiger kind of tiger skin stuff. And yeah, there's a lot. Of, I suppose a lot of it's a bit reminiscent of Jacob's Ladder. It's that kind of unpleasant Definitely. queasiness going through it. But yeah, it's. I'm glad to say it had a lot more humour in it mm. than I expected. And the guy who, I'd, like I say, even we've not read, we've not. Um, We've not read Faust, but I think it's a familiar enough story that we can probably reveal <coughs> this. Uh, the main character that Fausto runs into, I think pretty quickly we get the idea that he's at least possibly the devil. Santos Villa. Santos Villa. That's L. Who spells like, like mozzarella. mozzarella, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's such a lively character, isn't he's he? He's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the idea here isn't so much um, selling his soul for the, was it, love of Helen of Troy, I think, in mm. Faust. Um, um, here it's more that Faust is a completely lifeless character, isn't he? Or he's had all the he's, joy taken. He's cut out himself of him. off. Yeah, he's, he's isolated uh, himself. Yeah, and um, Santos is pretty much prodding in into trying to experience life and, and something quite specific as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's a really lively character. <laughs> What's going on with his knockoff sportswear? But he even <laughs> looks a little bit like. I mean, he doesn't really resemble it, but they've given him the, a bit of a look like uh, De Niro in Angel Heart. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Louis Cipher with the long dark hair and the little the little beard. But yeah, he really adds a lot to this. He's great, especially because at the beginning, he just appoints himself like um, Fausto's uh, chauffeur, and when he turns up at this conference of uh, other terminal doctors in Barcelona, <laughs> terminal doctors, doctors treating terminal cases. <laughs> He's kind of joining in as if he's on an equal, you know, as an expert with them or something. He's just a really lively character. He's great. Yeah, I, I loved him. I loved from the outset, and it's interesting because I've got um, I watched the making of this, and uh, he's only ever worked in theatre. This was the first time he'd ever worked in film, whereas all the others have like sort of film. Um, mostly the other actors have worked in film, but it really came across because he. I think you needed that. Um, theatrical sort of element yeah. because like Fausto is so is, I mean he, he actually looks monochromatic he's got these just shades of grey and he's uh, 
Yeah, and th- there are moments where he's he's being forced to come out of his skin, his shell, as it were. Um, and yeah, you can see him fighting it down. Whereas like uh, Santos Villa, he's he's larger than life. He's always like injecting loads of energy into the scenes, and it's it's a really good contrast. And as it goes on, you know, you can see these sort of um, changes in the characters where like Fausto is becoming more attuned to his lively side, but it's almost darker side as well. But at the same time, Santos Villa is becoming um, more objectionable and you can see a, yeah. a darker, yeah, there's more shadows surrounding him. Kind of yeah, thing. rather than cheering him up and encouraging him. I suppose it would have an element of like planes, trains and automobiles to play, wouldn't it? <laughs> The things that he's getting him to do become grimmer and grimmer. Because I suppose there's kind of midway point in the film and also in terms of what they're doing together would be when um, Fausto and Santos are in this posh apartment and (laughs) Santos really gives him this cathartic release. Come on, smash something up expensive. And um, Fausto's enjoying this, wearing this suit, playing this loud music and jumping around. And then um, turns around and the the owners of the flat, are there, <laughs> which which reminded me so much of Fish Called Wanda. When yes, <laughs> going around. So, yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was great. But then it gets yeah much grimmer. Like I said, this party we were talking about earlier with the the, the, the Velcro knickers. Um, great bits in that when he's in the toilet and there's like a goldfish swimming around in the toilet yeah. bowl and. <laughs> Just yeah, there was just some, and there's we won't tell you what it is, but there's just a brilliant joke because it's meant to be Santos's daughter's party, isn't it? Yes, but the, yeah. the joke about that is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> it's great, yes. Like, yeah. yes. But the, yeah, the issue I had, uh, you know, the Velcro ripping knickers woman. Like, I, I honestly, <laughs> is she in the Avengers? She too? was a bit Ellen Page for me. I thought, I how old that. is how old is it? And I thought well, that was part a, of. I think the idea is that she's meant to be prepubescent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing's said and but there's a lot shown so well I don't think you see anything uh, yeah it could all be done with body doubles yeah um, no of course but the idea is the viewer in mind of like feeling a bit well I certainly felt because even if the girl herself um, I don't know if she's meant to be but that seemed to be the implication certainly Fausto himself looks early 50s or something yeah I would have thought so yeah whereas yeah (laughs) yeah they get it on, and which is followed by a horrendous hallucination sequence. But that was a great Oof. thing. We won't, yeah, we won't say what that is. But um, the, a great thing with this is that sequence that follows, which is ultimately turns out to be an hallucination. But the picture of the film is such that you think maybe this is actually meant to be happening in the reality of the film. Yeah, like I say, even with um, Santos, you get the idea pretty early on that he must there must be something a bit supernatural about the way he's keeps turning up at the right time in the right place mm-hmm. but actually it could all just be a coincidence but it's one of those things that's constantly playing that game with you of is this is this something otherworldly or is it are we just interpreting it that well, way well my my theory in some ways is there's um, in the first ten minutes there's um, an incident at a train station and it's interesting that you brought up Jacob's Ladder before because I had this idea right, if you're familiar that, with yeah. Jacob's Ladder then you know where I'm, what mm-hmm. I'm talking about otherwise you've no idea but <laughs> that's probably good though then that means you'll go and watch Jacob's Ladder and then maybe watch this but that, that was one idea I had um, but yeah there's what, one thing I really really loved about all of this was um, the the uh, stage design the, the set design for it all because 
Yeah, very odd things like the hotel he stays in is covered in um, oh, yeah, plastic, like yeah, those they, artists. Because they're cleaning to, the building, aren't they? So they've yeah. got that plastic shroud through it, which I thought was meant to be a sort of um, parallel with because it's there's so many autopsies and exactly, things. Exactly, yeah. To be, uh, but there was artists who used to do that, didn't there? The, yeah. the two guys, I can't remember the names. But they wrapped like the um, the Reichstag in uh, Berlin, and mm. they're famous for doing this. But on the making of, I saw that I saw how they did this, and it was just like a tiny miniature that was mm. like set off Toward from the camera. The camera. Yeah. It, was, it was brilliant. I was like blown away. I thought, wow, I was really, I really thought they'd gone ahead and done this because one of the directors, there's three directors for this film. Um, there's one guy who's part of the theatre company, Lefeuille Dels Baus. Um, an actual director who they hired to do, you know, the technical, technical side of yeah. stuff, and then there's another guy who's also part of the theatre group, but he focused more on like the on because this is when like online marketing was yeah. starting to happen. And he you just did the pan Yeah, <laughs> but what they did brilliantly throughout was create this Barcelona. I've been to Barcelona quite a few times. Like, I've been there. I used to go to this festival that called Sonar Festival, which they filmed a lot of the interiors of the hotel uh, where this festival used to be set during the day it's like the modern uh, museum of modern art very white uh, minimalist building but also the rest of the city they portrayed it in a very post-apocalyptic way it was this kind of you know there's a lot of African immigrants in one particular section and also they had when he came off the train um, to the station there was a lot of Muslims praying there and they had pictures all over the wall and this was it, this must have been like pre I don't know 2001 was it, was it? May is that pre so. Madrid bombing yeah, then yeah. so that's that's quite prescient that's quite odd in a way you know you've got all these pictures of people on a wall yeah. but there's the, there's definitely a, a, a zeitgeist feel to it you know which yeah it can be viewed and it's open to interpretation but I, I really love that idea of it all being set in another reality in some ways yeah. it had that feel anyway. yeah no it's like I was saying I got that from the trailer and um, yeah there is just something about the way it's been directed that means death seems to be lingering through it obviously it's about a guy who does the autopsies <laughs> and stuff deals with terminal cases so that's that's there but it's it's absolutely backed up by all of the imagery in it yeah mm. uh, but yeah again like I say it's got um, it's Thank God it's got a load of humour through it, you know. Otherwise, it would have been too much of a struggle. It would have been. I mean, it's not that long a film. Actually, it's even shorter than I expected because I thought it was about an hour and a half, and I think it ends slightly yeah. less than that. But uh, it comes to kind of an abrupt halt. It's it's like, even though we, yeah, as you said, we all know the story of Faust. Um, the end's not quite what I expected, you know. Um, which kind of is the point I want to make about it. I did enjoy it a lot. Um, but I'm wondering, I mean, how relevant this is. It wouldn't be something, it, I can't imagine it being set up as a horror film. It's got a lot of those elements in it. But at the same time, it's not quite an art film either. And I'm not quite sure then why, obviously I'm not saying people shouldn't make films unless they fit into neat categories. <laughs> but it's one of these things where you think, what was the point of updating it? It's mm. um, Because I suppose the point is, Faust is about a specific thing of a man selling his soul, um, whatever that means in that particular whatever era you're in here it's not quite that is it it's not selling his soul it's trying to regain his liveliness and yeah. it didn't seem that relevant that it was worth as much as I enjoyed the film 
it did, I can't imagine people sitting down and say this is the story you want to tell. But I, I like the spin on it though. I mean, obviously yeah. they've been dealing with it within that the group like the fewer del spouse, but I think it's nice to have a a, a different take on it in some ways. Mm. You know, the, the, there's a specific thing he kind of achieves or acknowledges towards the end, isn't mm. there, with one of the other characters. Um, that was the thing. I just didn't feel that was a strong enough thing to base the whole thing on. And I was wondering to what extent maybe the film was more they had a visual idea and wanted to make a film, right. and the story kind of accommodated it rather than they had a story they wanted to tell and you know it worked that way around. Yeah, I mean, apparently it took four years to uh, film, mm. so um, they must have really believed in it. <laughs> to, unless there was a lot of like, financial was, pressure. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> but I think um, they still managed to pull something off, like quite interesting at, le- at the very least. So, like I said, I didn't see Hammersmith is out ahead of this, but I'm gathering you aren't that impressed by Dick and Liz. No, I was so underwhelmed by it. But I think I need to revisit it. I think it's one of those that you need to probably watch with a load of people and get drunk and laugh at it. It's really bad. Like, it's fucking terrible. Like, genuinely bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, misguided in all departments. I, mean, I think at that time, Burton was massively on the booze. He, you know, he was doing his, like, three, three bottles of vodka a day. And Taylor was yeah, she was probably equally as wasted. And you got Bo Bridges playing a hick, so playing himself, I guess. It ain't a party till Bo's there. I'm debating. Because this week, I think probably for one week only at the Peck and Plex, is The Raid. Ooh. Which I think you've already seen, haven't you? I did, I saw it yesterday. Any cop? Definitely, it's very stabby. Yeah, I was watching the trailer and it does look... The great thing with the trailer was I think they had the sound, like music over it, but none of the actual sound from the film. And I was watching it, and that looked good, but also I was thinking... If I'm sitting through two hours of this or whatever, is it just going to be a headache-inducing load of machine guns and uh, no, 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 explosions? It's, it's an hour and a half, and everything is like it's really well balanced. There's like enough quieter moments to yeah. offset the um, all-out. So set up his army takes on the drug dealers or something. Uh, the police, yeah. um, like a SWAT team. Yeah, they? take on this tower block that's ruled by a sort of kingpin figure and they've got to make the way it's like a computer game you know you have to get through all these levels uh directed by a youngish welshman uh, gareth evans he's called he's he's done another film i think he was making documentary about like the uh indonesian martial arts at the time and he met like the guy who became the lead actor in this and yeah it all just stemmed from there but yeah it's uh, it's just it's just massive action film basically it, it, there's nothing more to it you know. but you're giving it a thumbs up yeah oh definitely definitely it's thoroughly entertaining um, apart from the, <laughs> the guy who uh, came in 10 minutes late at the cinema when I was watching it a rather uh, hefty gentleman who struggled at the steps it took him a good 2 minutes to walk up to because I sit I usually sit about 5 rows back and he walked to nearly the top and he got in there 10 minutes late, started snoring from about five minutes in, <laughs> snored through the entire film, but massive snoring. I mean, he was like turbocharged snoring. He was like, 
and there was like moments where we were like whenever there was a quieter scene no action you just heard him and everyone was like tittering and laughing no one like thought uh, we'll go wake him up I, I actually wanted him to keep going and he did <laughs> right right through to the end credits as well <laughs> and was he still asleep at the end or yeah 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 left? right because I, I always stay to the end of the credits like the cinema and just he was still going just I just thought I'll go out and as I was walking out, I could just see the guy collecting all the old popcorn boxes and stuff, waking him up. <laughs> oh, he should have got his card. I'll do the podcast with him after all <laughs> France. It was it impressive because it is a loud film. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot going on as well. Okay, well, <laughs> I may give that a little view then. Definitely, mate. Well worth it. You know, it's, it's the tradition, isn't it? You know, Asian uh, chop socky cinema. Yeah, well, yeah, sort of on a related note to that, have you seen Jackie Chan has announced he's officially retiring from action movies? Uh, I thought he'd spin. done this a few years well, ago. Well, I did actually. <laughs> I thought he'd, because he'd, um, he was shifted towards, I've not, I've not seen the remake of The Karate Kid, but yeah, he was a bit more, uh, I imagine he was more of a subdued role in that, wasn't he? He was more. Stage. I've not seen it, I'm not going to either. Because he was like your boss Bjorn is like giving you advice. Yeah, on, yeah, uh, he's very sagacious like, on how to job. lose weight. <laughs> yeah, you got to convert that to muscle. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a shame though. In some ways, I suppose well, it's is, end of a legacy. You he know, is fifty-eight, but yeah, he's got one more film, shame. one more full-on action film, Chinese Zodiac, which I saw the trailer today. And uh, oh, is that a remake of the Fincher film? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, it looks like a remake He's of playing Lava. the unrevealed let, killer. <laughs> let me say it looks fun, but I didn't see anything there which I hadn't seen in lots of other. Like the set pieces looked like they were lifted from other things. Yeah. But then a two-way thing. Yeah. He's got a fine canon of work behind him, anyway. So <laughs> that's one of the action sequences. <laughs> well, you're French, aren't you? I can tell from your accent. I mean, your English is very, very good, but uh, for some reason, I can always tell with frogs. Everything to say just slipped out. Schoolboy expression comes from working in the city. I'm a Eurobondine and we're always calling people frogs. You're right, boring. Prissy lovebirds Hugh Grant and Kristen Scott Thomas are hoping to revive their romance with an anniversary cruise. What they hadn't bargained on was the relentless attentions of wheelchair-bound would-be scribe Peter Coyote, who's determined to bend Grant's ear over several days relating the unexpurgated yarn of his torrid fling with a voluptuous but volatile hammock mate, Emmanuel Senior. Will Grant be tempted away? Will Scott Thomas take it lying down? And can Farmyard Mass really bolster a flagging libido? Can I just say thank you to all of our listeners for voting for this? Um, yeah, anything could have been the Polanski poll winner, but this did amazingly well. It was way out in front, wasn't it? Yeah. You you hadn't seen it before. I hadn't heard of it even. Really? Yeah, I'm okay. not well, a there big is, Polanski person. So. I get, there's an age gap between us, but I remember mm. this coming out in 92 and being a little bit... Um, I'm not sure if it was like meant to be a return to form, but it certainly got a bit of publicity mm-hmm. because it was pretty racy, and everyone seemed to be talking about the milk scene um, in it, which I'm sure we will in a moment. But I specifically remember it came out when I just started, I think it was my first term at university, and one of the uh, things we were asked to do in one of the English modules was do a a review, so I suppose it was the first time I ever tried to <laughs> attempt to review a film. Mm. Uh, although it was meant to be two, so I did this and Blue Velvet sort of <laughs> as a comparison. <laughs> Um, I wish I'd kept it because I'd have probably read it out on the show now. Oh, but I remember at the end my um, my lecturer saying, um, 
I've seen Blue Velvet, but I haven't seen Bitter Moon, but I'll give it a whiz after. <laughs> a bit. So, a whiz like Emmanuel. So, well, <laughs> yes. so um, no, when I first remember, I remember watching this, what I don't remember is it being like nearly two and a half hours long. Mm. And I remember not really getting Coyote's character, but this time watching it, I was howling with laughter throughout it. Um, Peter Coyote, who generally doesn't, he's been a fairly solid kind of presence in films, hasn't he? But I've, I've never seen him play anything like this. He's usually kind of a vaguely sinister guy or someone you don't quite trust. But here, an amazing performance as this dreadful writer. And that's just one of the best things about it is that he's a. Hey, it's got so much in common with the rebel action, hasn't it? It got this uh, this would be intellectual who's falls very very short of his um, of his goals, and you actually have kind of like the rebel. There's a scene with a suicidal woman and um, an outrageous party with animal costumes again at the end. Haven't you? So um, I don't know if maybe Polanski had been sitting through the rebel and got an idea for it, or if Hancock had been around in the nineties, maybe maybe it would have been him in a fez in a wheelchair. <laughs> It's funny because only two weeks ago I saw Jagged Edge for the first time, which I've known about for years. Like I remember my parents watching it when I was a youngster. And I think they rented out and I saw the front cover of the tape. And the last in the last few years, I've read uh, Joe Esterhart's uh, biography, and so there's a lot of references to that. I thought oh, I've really got to watch this because it was on Sky, uh, one of the movie chat thriller or something. Fuck me, that was a boring film. I remember it being pretty much Basic Instinct, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's the thing, though. Is th- and and I'd like to say I'm glad you brought up Basic Instinct because Peter Coyote follows in the footsteps of uh, Michael Douglas in and wheel, Willem Dafoe. Right. <laughs> Willem Dafoe for like the kind of guys you don't expect to see in sex scenes. <laughs> <laughs> expect hope, <laughs> pray. Yeah. Um, but Coyote was in uh, Jagged Edge, and he plays, you know, like a hard-nosed, hard-balled lawyer or whatever. But in this, he was amazing. He is standout. The best thing about this film, because I, I think Polanski has got his tongue well in his cheek with it. I think he because this is just it's 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 not one of the funniest films I've seen. But you cannot take anything seriously, like from well, the from the get-go. A big a. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But one of the beautiful things with it is this came out before Hugh Grant was really Hugh Grant, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Even though he's still playing exactly the same as he always has, and right from there, the it's white what, worm. Two, two or three years. A couple after of years that. before. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, weddings. probably only a year or so. Yeah, two years before four weddings and a mm. funeral. But to watch it now, he brings that luggage of being Hugh Grant, and it's so so great because you often forget he's meant to be having these stories relate to him because yes, the setup is yeah. Hugh Grant and Kristen Scott Thomas find, I've forgotten her name, sorry, Emmanuel Senior, um, being sick at the beginning and helping it out. But then, uh, well, she is, she's, she's, how erotic is that opening? It's only like a chunky sweater chucking up in a sink. <laughs> she's being sick at the beginning. Wait, yes. wait till you watch the rest well, of it. Yeah. <laughs> Fluids galore. Um, but Hugh Grant's quite taken with her and sees her doing this very provocative dance. Um, He's out on his own. I think is Kristen Scott Thomas meant to be vaguely fatigued or whatever. Or yeah, just, just, yeah, I think the idea is their their marriage is in a bit of a rut and seven years. Yeah, you know yeah, they're trying definitely. to rediscover yeah. it on it. Yeah. 
but just wonderful scene when Hugh Grant sees her dancing and it's, it's, it's quite a sexy little dance she does but he's got no idea how to act with it he's trying uh, he, he tries to pick her up afterwards and she's just blowing raspberries in his face practically isn't she <laughs> it, uh, how terrible his, how terrible his uh, his pick up lines are then what we've got is the, the main frame of this um, the, ma the main setup of the film is Peter Coyote saying you want her don't you You know, I can't do him justice but uh, regaling Hugh Grant with his story which goes on for about two hours and just when you think it's over there's more and more of it um, but yeah as, as erotic and disgusting <laughs> as a lot of the stories get you always forget that Hugh Grant's meant to be listening to yeah. it and it's so hilarious it never stops being funny that that scene will end usually with something that just is jaw dropping and then it'll cut back to Hugh Grant going well I think I better um <laughs> Really ought to be uh, shuffling off now. Yes, <laughs> I really got this yes, with these uh, sordid stories. It's not Roger Moore. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. But yeah, Coyote as a bad—that's such a great conceit that he's a bad writer because he's telling the story and all of his prose is so amazingly I, bad. It's, I really, I loved it though. Oh, like, what when he's talking about her? Oh, my white sneaker, my sorceress in white sneakers. Yeah, no, I love that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's it's bad. It's cheesy. It's cliched, but I really like that. I love the, I love the idea. He's like, he's basically trying to be Henry Miller. Yes, and like yeah. failing miserably, but he's he's all his heart's into it in some ways because like you know nothing else is in it. Well, when he's yeah. regaling these stories, because it is just a series of flashbacks and then. This is something that I had like a slight issue with was the flashbacks. I found way more interesting than yeah, but the flashbacks are the, the lion's share. The stuff yeah. on the cruise ship is probably less than a third. It's probably more like a quarter of the film, isn't it? You know, it's it's more if like a that, framing yeah. device so that they can keep jumping ahead in time. And I think it would have been dull if it had just been um, yeah, no, just I, been the flashbacks. Yeah, because I did think that about that. I did think it was there any other way that they could have done it. Yeah, no, they can't really. And it it does like it. it I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the very end, but yeah. um, I do like the way it sort of starts to resolve itself. Like, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting well, because there was this period, wasn't there, from like the early '90s to the mid '90s, where these psychosexual dramas. I mean, there was a real. Mm. I don't know what's happened. I think everyone stopped stopped taking coke in Hollywood and found like ease or something but then rediscovered coke and started <laughs> just getting really nasty yeah, with all these I like, don't know, off the top of my head with nothing to back this up, I'm wondering, because I do remember when AIDS kind of became a big issue and stuff like when Dalton took over as James Bond they had to kind of rein him in so he wasn't having loads of uh, flings throughout the film he was, was concentrating one woman the film. Oh, that's I'm why he was pissed off, he was just yeah, masturbating yeah. all the time <laughs> on his cello case um <laughs> I'm not sure if there was some response to that because yeah it, it seemed mm. to be I don't know because I suppose it's things like The Lover's Guide was coming out as well like I said I've got nothing to back this up this is just a theory but I think maybe it was all about rather than just shagging for the sake of it it was more about going further and further with one person right yeah I'm not sure if there was something there because that's what this is yeah famous for and I've got to say um, the the milk scene was the famous thing when it came out and it actually still kind of <laughs> held up for me I was thinking, yeah, that is really quite a sexy scene, isn't it? When uh, I was extremely pouring... surprised by it. I was like, well, yeah, um, if people don't know it, but uh, Emmanuel Senya um, pours milk over herself and Coyote 
gets the gold. It's not just she pours it. She lets she drinks Dribbles it and it then like, yeah. it falls yeah. everywhere. It's kind of like ash in Alien. Yeah. After his uh, <laughs> yeah. head's been knocked off, but sexy ash. <laughs> God, I suppose that's that's a question. I yeah, we had a point before we recorded this. Uh, I was going to ask you about this. Throughout it, you got a manual senior, and I suppose she's meant to be the epitome of European free living. You know, gorgeous womanhood and then you've got Kristen Scott Thomas who I've always really liked I've yeah. found a very attractive woman but uh, who is absolutely massive in France now she's yeah. only in French films really yeah. for the last 15 years or so. um, have you got any comment to make on that I mean what about the, the mm, it, well wh- wh- <laughs> who would I do who would you rather be stuck in a lift with um, probably Kristen Scott Thomas I think yeah there's something I kind of liked her steady reliability yeah. in this <laughs> As soon as I saw this, because the first time you see Emmanuel Senya, she's um, fair dodging on a tram or a bus or something, isn't mm. she? And I just thought, no, just her whole look is a bit dead as well. She is a very, very it's, attractive it's, woman. It's, it's absolutely of its time, though. I mean, and the other thing that I, I feel about this is, I mean, it's based upon a, a novel by um, a French writer, and it is very French. The whole thing is it, it, it smacks of like Betty Blue and that kind of oh, uh, yeah. the, the late seventies, early eighties yeah. uh, novels that were coming out then. I mean, you could, I can, I know Polanski's got a history in France anyway, but um, through filmmaking, <laughs> he might have, you know, like he had in America. But, um, but yeah, that was something that I found qu- a little bit interesting. I don't know because I don't know the novel whether it was would be um, bookended well not even bookended but using like this English couple as the um, as a narrative yeah. device I don't know if that would have been the same but I thought all those scenes that the obvious scenes that are in Paris and stuff they all I think Coyote could easily be like Zorg in Betty Blue for example you know the tortured writer and stuff could it be like. sorted Superman <laughs> it could well be Neil before, before the will of Zod <laughs> the toaster would pop Neil up before again. the willy of Zod <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I don't know I think she encapsulates that period like you say which yeah I suppose in retrospect in hindsight it, it, it's very like well <laughs> but it, it makes sense for the time yeah because um, yeah a lot of the sex in this is quite ludicrous <laughs> and they do comment on it themselves. I mean, there is the that weather point. report on the telly. You know, when it's golden showers. <laughs> yes, very nice. <laughs> um, yeah, the the standout one is coyote in a pig mask <clears throat> and a pair of black briefs. They're not velcroed. I don't think. Or well, you don't get opportunity. I have no but idea. In, in, <laughs> well, I was watching that, thinking, is it coyote? Because he's wiggling about. And he's it's on him. Back, yeah. But then he eventually <laughs> does take the mask off. But he's thinking he could have gone no. No, I'm not going to do the pig mask thing. Whilst, uh, yeah. Shut up, pigs do not talk. <laughs> yeah, Emmanuel's not really getting on on this. Yeah. Well, I think he's not, and she, he's, he's breaking yeah. the breaking the magic. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, at two, I think it's two hours twenty. Did it outstage welcome for you? It's weird because I thought it would, but it didn't. Wow, like, so this is the second show running because he thought rule, uh, ruling class was going to be yeah. too much, and then it sort of. It was just so ludicrous. I was waiting for more and more of Coyote well, and Senya doing stuff. It's, like. it's kind of the reverse of uh, was it the Man from London, the Bellatar movie? Yes. did because again, <laughs> with it's definitely the reverse. <laughs> <of that. laughs> Things happen. Um, <laughs> That seemed to be just interminable, and it had all the sort of cheesy uh, f- 
accordion music, but this it's the joke the cheesy. joke got better and better the more that Hugh yeah it'll come back from one of these little um, flashbacks. Hugh Grant would say he's definitely not going to have anything more to do with this. Then he'll get reeled back in, and then Coyote will start again. More accordion music, more shots going over the Paris skyline before sort of going Be- into Coyote's apartment. And I was laughing so much at this. <laughs> yeah. More! It's going to go on and on and on. Paris, that springtime, yeah. was an amazing place to be alive. <laughs> but there is quite an interesting twist in the story of uh, uh, Coyote's, well, Oscar, his character is called, is relating because, yeah, he, you know, they get, he well, gets bored of the relationship, but Senya is absolutely massively in love. She's besotted with him. And then you've got a good like twenty minutes, half an hour of him trying to get rid of her, and it is really brutal what he does to her. It's torturous. It is because um, she actually says she doesn't mind if he has other women and he can do anything he wants to, her, but she can't live without him. Mm. And that must be a tough situation to be. <laughs> I imagine. But yeah, the fact it goes to the extremes of again, it gets ludicrous because the point when she's got this dreadful kind of peroxided hair yes. <laughs> which is quite a gap from when she, I think she's first doing the whole sexy routine which is where she does them kind of eastern dance doesn't she uh, I mean that's the thing to talk the, the, the soundtrack <laughs> yeah, to this let's talk about that not talk about the dance <laughs> the soundtrack to this is very of its time isn't it when, yeah when, massively how, given how erotically charged it's meant to be but then they'll play Faith by George Michael yes yeah. um, and one of my just possibly one of the best scenes of any film we've seen so far for the show but when someone dressed as the Pink Panther does a Kung Fu kick at the party at the end and then it's followed by oh, Lionel Rich's yes, hello yeah, coming yeah. up on the soundtrack <laughs> is it me? Look at yeah. me. <laughs> an astonishing moment uh, and talking of all time lows for the, <laughs> for the podcast the guy who plays the ballet dancer is possibly the very worst actor I yeah Basil <laughs> <laughs> I wrote his name down. I mean, I wrote I wrote down Basil is not gay. Yes, it's quite surprising because <laughs> he's got the little Bronsky beat haircut. And yeah, going yeah. On, but she makes a point of saying, "Look at all this, and he's not gay." That's very <laughs> Um But they make all right. The guy's been hired because he is a very good dancer. And yeah, he can do the whole thing with his leg up in the air. All that, all that, all that malarkey. But the, they do give him far too many lines of dialogue because he's absolutely. <laughs> Hair curling me terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's bad, but that's what's so good about it as well. well that's it. Um, the fact that Polanski is like, you know, he's made all these amazing films, and then that's it. But let's I, keep it in, man. Or I'm probably not as familiar with Polanski as I should be, but I always took him as a fairly serious filmmaker. I know his earlier stuff had a bit more humour, but I'm I'm quite intrigued to track down some of his other stuff now. I think, mm. yeah, you know, like you say, tongue in cheek. Uh, and even scenes like that I think he wasn't like oh the trade off we need this guy but we're going to have to have him to deliver some dialogue kind of yeah, yeah, no. I think he thought yeah go with it yeah. even having Lionel Richie in the, the Kung Fu Pink Panther is almost have uh, been something he was pretty cool with <laughs> um, something we really should have discussed by now is the soundtrack uh, by okay. well let's uh, on, on pronunciations <laughs> I'm going to call him Vangelis I know, I know on the last show there was some debate about whether it was Vangelis but um <laughs> Always the the main theme to this it plays over the beginning I think is absolutely gorgeous it's really beautiful. yeah I really liked it <laughs> slush oh I love the main theme to it it's great <laughs> but the rest of it is I'm gonna say probably perfectly good music but it seems like it's deliberately been played 
to sound like daytime soap opera. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, even taken into account the time it was made. I even the main theme was like it was. They were on pretty rocky ground for someone who's done, (laughs) someone who's done like Chariots of Fire, uh, Blade Runner. You know these like immensely um, powerful scores. You know, memorable. They're very epic sounding. Long sustained notes and stuff, and there's a real beauty and power behind them. And then this is just mush, like it's oh, pure I love the main cheese, thing. like it, it set me up for to see Emmanuel. No, I mean the whole thing is chucking up like... in a sink. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the rest of it was on a par with Coyote's dialogue and delivery. It was exactly as cheesy and. But you uh, needed that. Oh yeah, it, no, it, totally. It's yeah. absolutely yeah. part of it, isn't it? It makes up its uh, its DNA. Like yeah, I'm. I, I can see how people might not like this. I mean, I think someone who I think if you voted, missed the joke, yeah, yeah, it, well, it's like Brian De Palma with uh, Body Double. I think you really need to like watch this with. You don't. You don't need to watch this with Open Eyes. It's obvious. Yeah. It's very <laughs> obvious that you can't take this seriously. Well, we've we've talked a lot about how funny it is, but did you actually find there was? Uh, did, did it actually appeal to you as a story about you know? Oh, it did, yeah. Relationship, no, it, obsession. It, it really did. I mean, I love things like Betty Blue, and um, there's a brilliant uh, book by Niall Griffiths um, called Kelly and Victor, uh, set in Liverpool, about these two lovers who, you know, they, it, it all starts wonderfully and then it collapses and it becomes really dark. And that's really nice. I love those kind of like relationship breakdowns where, you know, you have the peaks and troughs and stuff. I, I think that's something that anyone could relate to and I was totally fine with it but I just think the way it was done is I mean hats <laughs> off like. <laughs> big masks off um, and you said you weren't so keen on the ending was that actually what happens or in terms of tying resolving it all you know I thought it was just a bit like meh it was like they have to end it somehow and they can't just say and that's my story yeah I would rather have had something like that I think something equally as preposterous as what has preceded it yeah I mean the ending is fairly preposterous but um uh, yeah I guess it is actually yeah I suppose because you have two endings in some way you have the ending yeah, yeah. of two characters and then the ending of the other yeah. two characters and yeah it does pan out alright but I'd rather have had something a bit more a bit of a flourish personally get up get up <laughs> How dare you try to fuck me, you filthy beast! Okay, that's it for show 36. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. As much as me. As much as Phil. (laughs) Um, Thanks for all your votes on the listeners' vote. Votes on the vote. And uh, get get them in for Scorsese for the next show. Uh, We'll give you a reminder on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter um, is at Midnight Video, Facebook, just do a search for Midnight Video. I think we're the only people with Midnight Video on Facebook. Yeah, not in the internet. We are people as, no, keep well, going to a different term. Yeah, it's funny though, but on iTunes we're the only Midnight Video. Oh, jolly which good. Which is quite good. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I'll check out our website, which is midnight-video.com, where there'll be supplemental stuff, stills, interesting stills as always. <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, especially for this show. <laughs> you can email us at uh, midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk. Uh, and yeah that's it let us know what's going on in your lives get in touch with us yeah it's always um, nice though. you've got a few more shows from us before the great divide when Phil will head off and things will be changed and go over the trench yeah the, uh, I think Le Tranche is uh, the French call the English channel Le Tranche 
I thought this was going to be one of Peter Coyote's <laughs> euphemisms. Okay, thanks very much. We'll see you again in a few weeks' time. Good night. A bientôt. psychiatrists all agreed that Polanski was not a sex offender, just had a lapse in judgment.